Welcome to Process to Profitability, a podcast all about the tools and strategies you need to serve your clients and grow your small business, hosted by me, Samantha Mabe of Lemon in the Sea. Join me as I chat with creative entrepreneurs and small business owners about how they built and grew their businesses and how you can do the same in a way that fits you. Let's get started. You're listening to episode 85 of Process to Profitability. Today, I'm talking about copyrights, trademarks, and all things intellectual property with Caroline Fox. We cover a ton of topics, so this is a busy episode, but it's got such great information. We talk about copyrights, what they are, how you can get one, why you need one, what you can do if somebody steals your work. Then we talk about trademarks and why they're important and how they can benefit you. And Caroline just gives us some great insight into steps we can take to make sure that our business is set up legally and that we are taking advantage of everything that we can so that our small businesses can really get out there and grow and we have the protection that we need. Caroline Fox is the principal attorney at her law firm, CJ Fox Law, and has been named to Virginia's legal elite list for the past two years. She also founded the Engaged Legal Collective, an educational resource with templates, guides, and workshops for wedding pros. She's been lucky enough to speak at conferences like Wedding Wire and Destination Wedding Planners Conference, and has written for a wedding business magazine and Rising Tide Society. She lives in Richmond, Virginia with her dog and is otherwise pretty boring. I hope you listen to today's episode. Like I said, there's a lot in it, but it's some really great information. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. So I read your bio at the top of the show, but why don't you tell my listeners a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Absolutely. Um, My name's Caroline. I am a lawyer, but I tell people I'm the good kind. I'm not the bad kind. Um, I help small businesses. I work with a lot of small creative companies, kind of do everything from corporate formation to dealing with any sort of disputes that they may have to working to protect their intellectual property to contracts, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I do go to court sometimes. I don't enjoy it, but you know, every once in a while, you kind of just got to throw on your power suit and, and walk in there and do the thing. Um, but I also run, I founded the Engage Legal Collective, which is a resource for wedding and event professionals um, to get some education on the law stuff, which is usually kind of boring, but I try to make it, try to make it fun. Okay. So how did you get started working with creatives? Um, my background is actually in PR. So I went to college for PR and advertising. And like back then, like way back when it wasn't all separated, it was just kind of one big thing. It was like digital media convergence. So like all marketing, advertising, PR was kind of in this one big lump. So I did some design work and I knew I really was interested in that. And then my sister is also an artist. So I was pretty familiar with all of those things. And after I graduated from college, I went and worked for a really big advertising agency, um, Christian Porter-Burguski. They are known for like the truth ads and Microsoft and Kraft and the mm-hmm. Domino's when Domino's like redid itself and um, Burger King. And it was so cool because I got to work in their kind of like in-house legal. That was during law school. But I ended up there um, before law school because I I met a bunch of the people that went there. So I knew I really wanted to work there. I really loved what they did in-house. And I thought like, hey, you know, 
I know I want to be a lawyer because I really like all of this legal stuff and where better to be a lawyer than with like the people that I kind of consider my folks. Um, so those creative minded, minded people. It's awesome. And we need lawyers cause we do not understand this stuff. <laughs> you know, I tell people all the time cause they'll come to me like small business owners all the time. They'll be like, Oh, you know, I'm really sorry. I don't understand this. And like, I should have done this before. And I'm like, look, I do not know the last thing about using a camera. I am literally the worst photographer on the planet. I don't know how to use Adobe Illustrator to save my life. So like we all have our strengths. <laughs> Yours just don't happen to be legal. Mine don't happen to be anything that you do. So it's kind of nice that I get to do things that are fun and cool and that I love, but like I'm not good at. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. And I know when you start a business, you don't really think about doing the legal things and having to have all of this in place because we're just so passionate about it. We're like, this sounds like a great idea. And it sounds easy when you can just put up a website and start offering things. Oh yeah. That, then the legal stuff comes in and it can be pretty overwhelming. Right. And you know, and I found that with small business owners, it's kind of like, it's really awesome because you do get to kind of like start this really cool thing, maybe without even realize you're starting it. Like maybe you're just making, you know, signs or fonts or like doing a website here and there. And then before you know it, you've got this full blown business and it's kind of like, Oh my God, like, I guess I need to be official about this. Mm -hmm. Um, and even though you may kind of be tiptoeing in and, and doing things easily and kind of easing your way into owning a business, the IRS doesn't see it that way, you know, you know, and the, uh, the state corporations commission doesn't necessarily see it that way. And like the office of licensing doesn't necessarily see it that way. So as soon as you kind of start being commercial or like doing those commercial activities, it's stuff you really have to think about, unfortunately. So just trying to kind of make it a little bit easier on people and less scary because I know it's terrifying. Even doing my own stuff sometimes I'm like, Oh my gosh, wait, did I do this right? Or like, Oh, did I file my taxes right? I don't know. Yeah. And some of it, once you get like started with, especially like filing an LLC, it's really not as hard as it seems like it's going to be. So it's something people should just go ahead and get done. And yes. that way you know you're in the right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's nice because once you do it, like it's done most of the time, you know, once you do it, it's mostly done and you don't have to worry about it and it just feels so much better and it's so much easier than you thought it was going to be. And even if it's like a time suck, like going and getting business licenses, it's always a time suck. It's always going to be a little bit confusing, but then once you're done, you're done. You don't have to worry about it again. And you're not sitting there like kind of ostriching, which is the term that I use for kind of sticking your head in the sand and just being like, la la la, maybe if I don't think about it, it'll go away and it won't be a problem. But you're so much more stressed out when you're ostriching than you are if you just take care of it and just get it done. So today we're talking about copyrights and trademarks and just intellectual property. So I'd love for you to tell us what that is and why it matters for creative entrepreneurs. Absolutely. So this is definitely the area that I love the most. I went to law school and I knew like first off, right off the bat that I was going to be in copyrights and trademarks, which is funny because 
I was every major in college. You know, it took me a really long time to figure that out. But once I got to law school, I knew that this is where I wanted to be because it's so cool. If you think about it, it's essentially anytime we talk about intellectual property, we're talking about copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, and patents. And usually I only focus on copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets because patents are those things that are like the inventions, the like biological advances, things that you that people with science backgrounds and like computer backgrounds do. And that's just not, not my style. And mostly it's not my client's style. So when we talk about intellectual property, it's the stuff that just comes out of your brain and that you create just by being yourself or doing your process or um, sitting and thinking. And it's the things that come out of the end of your pen, things that you kind of like fix in a way as to make them tangible and you put them down on paper. So a copyright is well, the legal definition, it's, it's a creative work fixed in a tangible medium that like doesn't really mean anything to anybody. So essentially it's something that you put on paper or on your computer or you record that you have created. Not super hard. Any sort of creative masterpiece that you come up with. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be a masterpiece. You can draw a stick figure on a piece of paper and like technically you can have a copyright in that stick figure because it's something that came out of your own like brand of creative genius. Now, some people's creative genius is a lot, the threshold is higher than others. You know, most people listening to this podcast, your creative genius is going to be a lot higher than mine. But you can have copyrights in things that you write, your poetry, stories, articles. You can have them in photographs that you take. You can have it in um, songs that you sing or that you write. If you're recording a song that you're singing, you have a copyright in the recording itself. If you write a piece of music, you'll have a copyright in the written piece of music. And that's, things get a little bit crazy there, which I also worked in the recording industry. So, you know, that's, that's its own beast. But, and then if we think about trademarks, trademarks are source indicators at their very bare bones minimum, like that's what they are. And I think a lot of people get kind of caught up on what trademarks actually are and what they do. And they think that a trademark belongs to someone and that like, I get this trademark and I own it. That's really not what it's for. It's for consumers. And I tell people, and I literally just hung up the phone off. I got off a call about this earlier. Trademarks are not about you. They are about the consumer. And you are granted a trademark as a way that the government is saying like, yes, you've built up a goodwill in this brand. So we will allow you to protect the public by being the only one that can use it. And I think reframing your thought process around that is so important because if you get some, I get people that come to my office all the time. They're like, I'm going to trademark this. And I'm like, well, is this something that you put on all of your stuff? Like, is this something that you're using to show that it comes from you, that this product or service comes from you? And they're like, no. Like, well, we really can't trademark it then. That's not really what trademarks are for. Yeah. And then finally, we do have this little gray area of trade secret. And that's this is something that I actually really, really like to utilize with my small business clients because it doesn't require much and you can get a ton of protection just by putting a couple little pieces in place. And a lot of people don't talk about trade secrets because I actually don't know why. I really don't know why we don't talk about them more often, but it's essentially the things that you have created within your business to kind of give you a competitive edge. Now, maybe that's a certain process. Maybe that is your client list. Maybe that is the list of um, 
vendors that you put together that you know are like top of the line. Maybe it's your pricing, something like that. But as long as you're keeping those confidential and they're giving you that kind of competitive advantage and it's not something that everyone in your industry knows, you can protect that as a trade secret. And then that way, if an employee steals that and goes and like starts their own company or like takes it to a competitor, you can like get money for that. You can get an injunction. Um, and there are just a few simple steps to take to, to protect that information. So those are the three areas that I think creative entrepreneurs really need to be aware of and the three areas that I really like to work in. Do you know what your dream clients see when they come to your website? The only way to figure out how your dream clients are using your website and what makes them leave is to ask them. I've created a special UX test guide that you can get at lemonandthesea.com slash UX test. Inside, you'll learn how to structure a user experience test to get the best results, 18 questions to help you really see your website through their eyes, and my favorite way to find dream clients to help you. You need to look at every stage of your client's journey from landing on your website to completing the final goal through their eyes so that you know what to change right now to start converting more visitors into clients. Get the guide at lemonandthesea.com slash UX test. So... A lot of times we think about these things, especially trade secrets to me, like that's for really big companies that have all of this information, you know, like the formula for Coca-Cola and nobody's allowed to know. Right. Um, Can creatives, entrepreneurs benefit from having these things in place, even though we're really small kind of businesses? Absolutely. Now, with trade secrets specifically, okay, let's like kind of break that down and see how that can actually help in like tangible form. So maybe you are a designer, right? You're a web designer. You've got this really awesome kind of workflow process that you have developed, or maybe you just have a list of all of the best places that you source your graphics that you source um, different types of, I don't know, code. See, this is where my like creative genius line stops. (laughs) (laughs) Just places you get things and a process that you use, maybe it's like a, a different style intake form that you know is like really, really on point and really helps you get to the bottom of what it is your clients want. Um, and it's really important to you because you spent a really long, you spent a long time developing this and you know, it's not something that other people in your industry use. Now, if you are kind of worried about maybe one of your proteges or your like in your interns coming in and working for you and taking that and going and starting their own business with it, you know, maybe you've spent time developing relationships with your vendors, or maybe you've spent time developing this intake questionnaire. You can protect that. And that's, I mean, it's your time and your energy. And I think it's important because it's not something that you're going to copyright. It's not copyrightable really. You know, it's not like it's something that you can patent, but it's something that you spent a lot of time, a lot of thought, a lot of energy putting blood, sweat, and tears into. So what you can do is you essentially set up a way to keep it confidential, to keep it safe, to make sure that, um, you know, you're getting people that are looking at it, signing NDAs, which is a non-disclosure agreement. And that's basically it. And that's all you really have to do to protect this information. This also goes for things like client lists, pricing lists, because pricing, I know as creative entrepreneurs and service providers, you know, we're always talking like, okay, what do you do about pricing? What does this pricing model look like? How do I know that I'm charging enough? How do I know I'm not charging too much? Blah, 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 blah. If you've really gotten it down to like, okay, this is what I need to charge. This is like 
what this kind of project costs, those pricing lists can be considered trade secrets. As long as you don't have them like up on your website and you're like waving around, like kind of like, woo, you know, my prices are posted on my website. And for me, that works. But if you are a different kind of creative entrepreneur, maybe it's better for you to keep your pricing kind of on the DL and to have conversations to figure out what that pricing actually needs to look like. And those are all things that I think creatives can benefit from. That makes a lot of sense. And I think these are all things that we can use in our business that we don't have to feel like that's something that's out of our reach or that isn't important for us. Absolutely. Okay. So for copyrights specifically, when might somebody need one and how does the process of going about that work? Okay. Copyrights are great because technically you get a copyright in something as soon as you create it. So I draw a stick figure again, an ugly one because I have no level. My, my creative genius is very low. Um, and I technically have a copyright in that stick figure, which is awesome, but you can't actually utilize the legal system until you register it with the government. And, you know, I'm getting a little high level here because I feel like I kind of have to go up here and then we can swoop back down. But we have these two kind of like systems of copyright. You have common law copyright and that stuff that kind of just comes out of you drawing it, putting it in something tangible, writing it down, making it. And then you have federally registered copyrights. And that's the stuff that the government says like, yeah, you've registered with it with us so you can use our system to protect it. So if you want to sue someone to enforce a copyright, you need to make sure it's been registered. The like most heartbreaking thing for me is when a creative entrepreneur comes to me and they say, Hey, I have this. A lot of times it happens with photographers or people um, who make you know, some sort of creative design. They come to me and they say, Hey, I took this photograph and I see it blown up on the side of a building and they didn't ask me, they didn't pay me anything or like, you know, maybe this brand used my photograph in their campaign and they didn't pay me or they didn't ask me for that. Now, if they haven't registered the copyright, it makes it a lot harder for us to kind of recover money for that use, or at least big money for that use. Because if you register a copyright, you're automatically looking at the ability to sue right then and there. You're looking at 150,000, you know, up to $150,000 in damages, um, you know, per infringement, per willful infringement. That's just kind of like off the bat. Uh, you are looking at attorney's fees, which become very expensive because a copyright suit is a federal lawsuit and there's no real way to, to kind of get around that fact. But if you haven't registered your copyright, we don't get any of that off the bat. We literally just kind of get the value of the copyrighted image itself. So, you know, what that licensing fee would be. And maybe that licensing fee is only going to be like 1200 bucks. We don't know. I mean, that's not going to finance a copyright lawsuit. And companies know that. They're going to say, they're going to be like, oh, really? You want to sue us? Okay, go ahead. But, you know, if we've got a registered copyright, our bargaining position is a lot stronger. We can go in and demand, you know, 20 grand. Because 20 grand is a lot better than $150,000 for an act of infringement. So actually registering your copyrights gives you a lot stronger of a position and it gives your lawyer a lot better of a starting off point in that negotiation process. Okay. And it sounds like it might level the playing field if a big business stole your work. If it's registered, then you could do a lawsuit. They're responsible for attorney's fees if you win. So you're not 
going to be as scared off by kind of trying to enforce that. Exactly. You get to do all that, uh, have all those attorney's fees. It's, and even if it is, an, it's expensive to finance. Like it is very expensive to finance a lawsuit. Most of the lawsuits that come through our door as lawsuits, when people say like, oh, I need to sue this person. Honestly, I'm going to say like 95% of them settle because no one wants to go to court. It's mm-hmm. so stressful and it takes years to even see anything. And, but even if we do end up kind of settling, you're going to settle for probably a lot more than if you hadn't registered the copyright in the image or the the design or the whatever. Okay. So if somebody's listening and they're like, okay, I need to copyright stuff. Maybe they have a whole bunch of stuff. Give us an overview of how that works and kind of how they should approach doing that. Absolutely. So there is a lot the the copyright office. It is not easy. They've not made it easy. Sorry. <laughs> I just like word vomited. I just, I have a lot of feelings on the way they have set up the system. I think it should be the design of the system. The user experience should be a lot easier to deal with, but it's not. So I think what is helpful is reading. They have these things called circulars. If you have a lot of designs that you need to copyright or you are constantly coming up with new stuff, they have these things called circulars and essentially what they are are pamphlets. So I would just kind of familiarize yourself with that process through reading the circulars. And they actually give you a lot of great information. They're dry. They are very boring. They're not cute. Just they're PDFs. But if you can go through and read those, that will really help you understand the process so you don't really feel as, as like you're floundering as much. I would go to an attorney who can flat fee the process for you because it can get expensive. The filing fee per copyright is usually around, it's around $55 per copyright. Now, if you're copywriting every image you've taken, if you're a photographer and you've copyrighted every image you've taken from you know every wedding this season, Obviously, that's a ton of money, right? If you are a designer and you're copywriting everything that you've made this year, that's going to be a lot of money. So what you can do in a lot of circumstances is you can put them together in these things called collections. And a collection is essentially just putting them all, all of the stuff, all of the things you've made in a bag and registering that one bag as a, like a full kind of copyrighted collection of work. Um, you don't get as much money if somebody infringes because you only get to sue on that collection once per infringement. So if somebody took two images from the collection, you wouldn't get to sue twice. You'd only get to sue once. And we're getting a little technical here, but so it's not as big dollar, I guess you could say, but you're still getting that $150,000 worth of statutory damages. And that again, gives you a really, really heavy handed bargaining chip to kind of go in with. So I recommend at least the first few times working with an attorney so you can know that they're getting done correctly because you also have to mail a bunch of stuff in and like it has to be one copy or two copies and um, where it has to go and, and what format it needs to be in. It's not very clear. So I would definitely recommend working with an attorney, but once you kind of get the hang of it and know how it works, you can kind of maybe start moving into it and doing it yourself. Again, I would love for the process to be a lot easier because I think it's a really great way for creatives to be able to level that playing field. But until the copyright office makes their website better, we're kind of just stuck with dealing with what we have. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. And this sounds like something, you know, whether you go back and do all of your old stuff, but it should be something you're kind of keeping up with so that then you're not having to do an entire year's worth of stuff at once. Yeah. And if you can, and if you do qualify for having your works in a collection, because there are certain um, qualifications that you have to meet, but I recommend honestly, just 
kind of splitting them up into manageable and easy to identify chunks, whether it's quarterly, you know, you could do like spring 2018, file it all as, as one collection, or maybe you only make five websites a year. Maybe you're just doing each of the design work from that in a collection itself. Actually, I don't know if you can file those in collections or not, but I have to look that up. Um, but just kind of splitting it into manageable portions and what's going to work for you because systems are great. And I'm like, a, I'm a freak about like loving systems, but the only kind of system that's going to work is one that you're going to keep up with. So you just have to do what works for you and what's going to make the most sense for your business and your process. Okay. You had mentioned a little bit about, you know, having copyrights if somebody steals your work, but what are some quick like first steps we could take if we notice that somebody has stolen our work, whether we have a copyright registered or not? Right. First thing you're going to want to do, even before this happens, uh, I think being proactive is an ounce of prevention, right? So I think it's really good to put copyright your name on um, any website or any content or any, if you have a design gallery or a portfolio or anything like that, just putting that it's copyright to you on the bottom. Maybe you have a, that you're teaching a course and the materials put copyright, whatever your name is, whatever your business is on there on the first page, on the bottom of the pages, every other page, whatever makes sense for you. Just to remind people like, Oh yeah, this is a copyrighted material. You actually don't need to be right. Copyright, all rights reserved. Blah, 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 blah. If you just have copyright, your name and the year, you'll be fine. Cause I know design and the amount of text kind of turns people off sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> that preventative step is quite helpful. Then if you do realize that someone has taken your work, honestly, a lot of times we all want to work together and we all want to kind of encourage others and we're not out to get each other. Right. So a lot of times people have just made a mistake. They, didn't check. They don't know any better. They think that they can take stuff off the internet. Maybe they're just starting a business, whatever. If it's a small company, you can honestly email them and say, Hey, just so you're aware, you know, this is actually copyright infringement. I'm not really trying to go after you, but can you please take this image down? Or can you at least, you know, you could work something out with them where you like license that image to them. I do recommend that as a creative entrepreneur, you've got some sort of copyright license kind of in your back pocket. It can be like a one page document. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, but it just says what someone that you give something to, whether it's a photograph, a design, a song, whatever, what they can use it for, what they're entitled to do with it, if they can reproduce it, if they can give it to other people. So just kind of having one of those present is very, very helpful. And just keep it on file somewhere. And then that way you can send that to them and just be like, look, this is my licensing agreement. If you use it in this way, I'm okay with it. Or you could be like, hey, for $25, because we, I sell these on creative market for 25 bucks a piece, so you can pay me $25 and continue using it, or you can take it down. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing is an option too. There's also a really great resource. If you're a photographer, there's a great resource. Getty Images, I think, has a calculator. Also, if you're a designer, if you're, and you can kind of go off this as well, it's got a calculator for how much an image is worth. And you can go online and find that and kind of put in whether it's being used for commercial purposes, like what their reach is, what their audience looks like. And it can give you an idea as to how much you should charge somebody 
for using an image. And that'll come into play when, if you do get infringed upon by a bigger brand, and when you get infringed upon by a bigger brand, kind of the stakes go up a little bit more. Because obviously they've taken your stuff, they know better, they should know better. Um, they have the money where they should be paying you for your work. They should have um, some sort of process in place to prevent this from happening. So what you're gonna wanna do is you're gonna wanna reach out to them. Uh, I would reach out to their general counsel. Usually there will be some sort of general counsel link or you can just Google like general counsel for like, I don't know, Under Armour, whatever. And I would reach out to them and just be like, hey, you have infringed on my copyright. So you can either pay me this licensing fee or I'll put you in touch with my attorney. Granted, that's a little bit aggressive, Maybe you want something else from them. It's a great time to also kind of leverage the situation and say like, look, I know that this image is great. Um, you have actually infringed on my copyright though. So like maybe we should talk about ways that we can move forward and collaborate. That's also a different way to go about it. So it's kind of just figuring out what, I mean, what would your brand avatar do essentially? Like what, if your brand was saying like, hey, this is how I want to move forward what's the solution that would make sense for the brand? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be known as a really, really tough enforcer or do you want to be more collaborative in your approach? I think it has to do a lot with the, the situation and the variables on each situation, but I never send emails the day that I figure something out or that I find out something. So I would take a good 12 to 24 hours to think about what you want your approach to be. Yeah. And then kind of execute that way. Okay. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about trademarks. So we talked about what a trademark is, but what are some types of things that you can trademark and when would you go about doing that? Right. Absolutely. Now, the best answer is you would do a full trademark search before you either name your company, before you adopt a slogan, before you get a logo, anything that's going to be a source indicator or that's going to say like, that people are going to see and say like, yes, that design name, logo, whatever is associated with this company. Um, it can even be colors sometimes. Like if you see Tiffany blue, you know that it's Tiffany blue and it's coming mm -hmm. from Tiffany's. Like if somebody pulls out a blue box and you're just like, Oh my God. Yes. Ah! Um, so you know that that's, that's Tiffany blue and it's, it's a Tiffany's box. But um, for most creative entrepreneurs, it's going to be your name, your slogan and your logo. The best time to do it is always before you start, but that's not always when people come to me. People come to me usually after they've been in business for a few years, maybe a few months. Um, I would say the sooner you can do it, the better, especially with the nature of the internet and global services. And if you are an, an entrepreneur that sells stuff online or that you have an online presence, or maybe you have a really active Instagram page, you really, really need to make sure that there are no federal marks that are going to cause problems for you or that there are no state marks that are going to make problems for you. Because if somebody has registered a trademark in their state and you registered at a federal level and they registered their state trademark way before you registered your federal trademark, technically you can't really move into that state using your federally trademarked name. Um, and that's where things get complicated. Now, I know that there are a lot of services out there that do it for you, that you, know, you can like do your own legal zoomy type thing for trademarks. And there are some places where I tell clients, you know, legal zoom might be a good idea for you for forming a single member LLC or 
prepping a really, really simple promissory note or like loan agreement where it's just super, super straightforward. But trademarking is not one of the situations because it's really actually very nuanced. And there are quite a few trademark practitioners and trademarking services that will present themselves as uh, kind of either experts in the field or that they know what they're doing, that they can get you a trademark for a really, really low price, but they're not doing all the background work that has to go into it. And that means doing trademark clearance searches, looking at state filings. They're maybe just going in and doing a one and done search of the USPTO website where they just type in the name and see if there's any exact uh, matches. And if there's an exact match, they'll say, hey, you probably can't get this trademark. Or maybe they're not even doing that. Maybe they're just saying that they're going in and doing a search and they're really just like not doing the background research they need to be doing. So I would do it sooner rather than later because the last thing you want is to get through everything, maybe have even filed for a trademark and it gets rejected or it gets granted and then canceled, which I've seen happen as well. And then you get a cease and desist in the mail and have to do a rebrand, which happens more frequently than you would think. Okay. Yeah. I, um, when I used to work for a company, they wanted me to look into trademarking all of their product names. And it was the most overwhelming thing I think I've ever researched. (laughs) Oh God. I can't even imagine. Yeah. It's just, I got off the phone with somebody this morning and, um, she was like, wow, you know, I thought I did a search, but like, what you're showing me is so different than everything that I thought. Everything came back for me. It looks completely different than your screen because I was screen sharing. Mm-hmm. And um, I just was like, yeah, you know, the, the again, the USPTO office, it's really ugly and the search feature is not good. And the things that we're looking for too are anything that looks the same, sounds the same, is spelled the same. Maybe it's the same words in a different language because we evaluate on sight, sound, and meaning. So you could be looking something up in English and be completely clear, but there's something registered in Spanish that translated means the exact same thing. And then we're kind of stuck in your markets rejected. So that's the stuff that a lot of the services that are less expensive aren't doing for you. Okay. And it's not cheap to just pay to get it registered either. So you want to make sure you're doing it right the first time to not have to pay for it again. Exactly. Exactly. Because it sucks when people come to me and they're like, hey, my trademark, you know, I just got an office action from the examiner. And the office action is essentially a, uh, it's a pre-refusal, you could say. It's them saying, it's a trademark office saying like, hey, if you don't fix this, we're going to just completely flat out refuse it because it's not right. Or there's something wrong here, but we're going to give you one more shot. So it's kind of a nice way of them being like, hey, fix it. And Mm -hmm. they come to me with a trademark because it's gotten that first office action. And I look at it and I say like, oh my gosh, I w- if I would have just filed this for you, we could have nipped this in the bud, wouldn't have had this refusal. And now we can't go back and change anything because it's already been filed and you can only change certain, certain aspects of your filing and you've wasted all of this money on a trademark and now we have to start all over. So again, it's, exp- it, it's expensive. Legal work is never going to be not expensive, but... That's because there's a lot of research and risk that goes along with it, unfortunately. And it's just kind of the cost of doing business. You know, I tell people that the dream of starting a company like Google in your basement, it's, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. It's really inexpensive to put up a website and maybe download some software and be able to 
produce videos or, or design things or take photos, but you also have all of this business back end stuff that you still have to pay for, even though you're just operating out of your garage. Yeah. I know sometimes people talk about like big company names that are trademarked that seem like they shouldn't really both be able to. So like Dove Chocolate and Dove Soap, can you just briefly go over how that works? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this is really cool because there are different classes that we register trademarks in. Now, classes are essentially the breakdown of um, different categories of stuff. Like, there's really no way around it. It's just different <laughs> categories of stuff. And it's completely arbitrary. The USPTO and then, well, the, the global body that also works with it because the USPTO works with a global trademark enforcement uh, kind of UN almost. It's like the trademark UN. There's not really a, another great way to describe it. Uh, but a bunch of countries got together and agreed to like help protect each other's trademarks and stuff. So they've all come up with these international classes and there are, I think 45, 46, 48. Ugh, I, at this point, it's, they kind of all run together and they just break down stuff, goods and services in different categories. So you can have a mark that is registered to category 35, which you know, maybe that in this situation, that is something that has to do with a service, like, I don't know, a DJ service. That's not right. That's not supposed to be in that category, but I'm going off the top of my head here. Now you can have Dove DJs in category 35, but you could also have Dove soap in category, you know, six, because when you register a trademark, you only get protection for the class that you're registered in. You don't get this like blanket protection over every use of the word in every way, shape, or form. Now, that being said as well, you also don't get protection over like certain kind of nominative use where you're just kind of, people are just using it in a, in a kind of like off the cuff kind of way where they're not using it as an indicator of source. So if people are saying, I mean, that's essentially how we're allowed to refer to our favorite football team and just be like, oh yeah, the Baltimore Ravens. Like, you know, I'm going to the Baltimore Ravens game or like, radio stations are allowed to say, oh yeah, the Baltimore Ravens score was, the score from the Ravens game was, you know, seven to 14. They're allowed to use that because they're using it in a way to just kind of describe what it is. They're not using it as an indicator of source. Mm -hmm. Now that's, we're getting really, really into nuanced land here. So I'm going to kind of pull out a little bit more, <laughs> but just know that if you register it in a class, that's where you get the protection. So if you are registering it in a class of service, then somebody, a class that relates to services, somebody can actually come around and make a product that has the same name. So that's why you have like Dove chocolate and Dove soap, um, because they're very, very different. There's no chance of somebody looking at a, a bar of Dove soap and thinking like, mm, that'll really taste good. You know, they're <laughs> sold to different types of consumers. They're kept in different places in the home. So there's no real issue of us getting confused as to where one comes from and where the other one comes from. Okay. And you can't just go and say, I want to trademark it. I've got a million dollars and I want to trademark in every category. You have that's to true. be using it, correct? Yes, that's true. Now you have to show that use. You can always file what's called an intent to use, but you actually have to have like a bona fide intent to use it, which means like you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to use this mark in this category, even though I, I'm going to file this intent to use, even though I have no thought of actually, you know, doing it. I just want to block somebody else. You can't do that. Um, but 
you can always, if you're not quite using it yet, or you're like in the process of you of getting ready to use it and you know that you're going to use that trademark, you can file an intent to use. But that being said, at some point you have to show that you are using it in commerce, which means just using it commercially. All right. And what is the difference between the TM and the circle R? That's a great question. So the TM just means trademark. You can use TM on anything that you are using as a source indicator. So even if you don't have a registered trademark, you can use it on your name. So you could use it, maybe the like process profitability, it's not a registered trademark. You could put the little TM next to that because you're using that to show like this podcast comes from this place. You can expect Samantha every week in your ear. And that's a proper way to use that little TM symbol. The circle R is essentially just saying that it's a registered trademark. And that is um, federally mandated and, and you can't just use circle R willy-nilly. Uh, you actually have to have a registered trademark to put that next to your name. All right. Do you have anything else? We covered a ton of stuff, but is there anything else you want to share before we get into action steps and wrapping up today? Yeah, I think the thing that I just wish more people would keep in mind is that your business is really valuable. And just because you may be starting out or you're just kind of doing stuff, doesn't mean that you don't have valuable IP, valuable product, valuable services. And if you put maybe even like minimum wage on the number of hours you're putting into your business, even as it's starting, you're investing like thousands and thousands of dollars. So it really does make sense to do it right and to protect it or to at least kind of put the steps in order to keep your business from kind of like having one of those panic moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't do things right. I have to go in and um, play catch up or go into correction mode and, and waste a lot of time and money fixing your mistakes. Mm-hmm. So can you give the listeners three action steps that they can take in regards to copyrights, trademarks, intellectual property, all of that? Sure. So the first thing I would do is honestly kind of make an evaluation, figure out what you have, like what is valuable to you? What stuff do you have? Have you created um, over the years, over time, either for clients or for yourself inside your business, that includes trademarks, that includes trade secrets, that is valuable to you or is valuable to somebody else. Because the first step is identifying all the things that you have that maybe you want to protect or maybe you would be bummed if somebody stole or you would be upset if you saw somebody else claiming that they created. The second step is to research lawyers in your area that might be able to help you out if push comes to shove. It's always better to have somebody on speed dial if you need them than to be freaking out about a situation and have to find a lawyer, like have to be interviewing lawyers at the same time, because then you're under pressure, then you're making emotional decisions and you don't have as much of a perspective as you would if you were doing that in a less heightened state of anxiety. You don't even have to, like, they don't even need to know that they're, that they're like your lawyer in your head. But as long as you have somebody that you feel like you could go to if there's a problem, that's awesome. That's okay. like, that, that's all you need. And then the last, like, little tidbit, I guess, would be 
start putting those preemptive steps in place, the little TM, the little copyright symbol. Those are just kind of ways of noting to people like, hey, this belongs to somebody, like don't steal it. Because that way you're being proactive, you're teaching people not to steal your stuff and you're kind of putting the little bug in their ear, even if it's without them knowing that this is stuff that is valuable to someone. All right. Uh, So as we wrap up, can you give us an example of how serving your clients well has benefited your business? Absolutely. I mean, I think the only way that I can thrive as a small practitioner and compete against bigger firms is to try and just get on the same level as my clients and get get my hands dirty with them and understand their problems and their pain points and kind of work with them to find a solution as opposed to just kind of dictating what the solution is going to be. Now, big firms, they're obviously going to be able to provide an entire swath of services. They're going to be able to like keep stuff in house and um, and not have to refer out for certain things. Whereas I am very, very focused on what I provide and I may have to refer clients out for certain things. But that being said, I can also kind of provide that really, really intense deep dive look into not only the client's problem there, but kind of providing that shoulder to cry on and making sure that they know that they're important. Whereas a larger firm, maybe a small business would get a little bit more like lost in the shuffle um, because they're very important to me and I can be emotional with them and I can make that connection. So I think that's really important. And honestly, that's how it's benefited me in the long run. Okay. Tell me two things that you're loving right now. They can be business or life or one of each. Oh my gosh. Two things I'm loving right now. Well, the first thing I'm loving is the Sato. I talk about it all the time to just random people who literally don't care, (laughs) but it just makes my life so much easier to be able to send stuff out and not have to worry about it and like auto populate stuff. And then I am also really loving that I'm getting to wear my fall clothes Mm -hmm. finally because it's been so hot. Oh my gosh. And I just kind of like have been looking at them in the closet and waiting to be able to get to wear my little fall booties. And, and I'm a summer lover, but man, it's awesome to finally be able to get to be like, I'm going to wear blankets and warm (laughs) things and not have to worry about like sweating everything off. Yes. And I, all the listeners to this podcast have heard a lot about Dubsado because that's what I use. So yes, (laughs) they know that one. Oh God. Yeah. I love it. I mean, everybody I think loves their own systems and processes and stuff, but dear Lord, I've used almost, I'm a freak where I'll try everything before I like pick one and I waste way too much time, like late at night when I'm in like a a black (laughs) hole of internet stuff. And, um, I've tried out so many different types of client management software and then, and billing and all that stuff. And Dubsado is just my favorite. All right. So what are you excited for that's coming up in the future? Well, I'm going to be going to Vegas for work um, in the next month or so to um, talk to the folks at Wedding MBA, which is exciting. And I'm also really excited for the close of the year, honestly, because it's when a lot of my clients kind of have last minute stuff that they need to get done. And it's usually a pretty crazy time, but it's a really exciting time because people know what they've done for the year. They know what they need to get done for the next year, kind of where we can spend extra money on uh, legal stuff, which is the very technical term. So that's really an exciting period because books are closing. We know what deals we can push through. Maybe we have some stuff that we've been holding off on. Um, And so stressful period, but also very, very exciting. 
All right. And my last question is where can people find you online? If you are looking for me, you can find me online at www.cjfoxlaw.com. That is my law firm. If you are a wedding and event professional, you can also find me at www.engagelegal.com. That is my blog and my contract template shop that is completely separate from my law firm, obviously, but um, it is directed at wedding and event professionals. You can also find us on Instagram at engagelegal. So yeah hang out, shoot me an email, do whatever you need. And I will try and get you straight or connect you with somebody who can help you out. All right. Thanks so much for coming on today. Oh my gosh. Thank you. This was so fun. I loved being able to like be on the other side of the mic today. Thanks for listening to Process to Profitability. Please take a minute to leave an honest review in iTunes so that I can help more small business owners and creative entrepreneurs find the show. 